A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor here at the TLS, and our usual host Thea is away. So Alex Clark, friend of the TLS and especially of the podcast, is here with me. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, Lucy. Delighted to be here. We're very happy to have you. I'm sure you've been keeping up with the dinosaur poem. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Not just keeping up, I'm enraptured by it. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah, I'm going to get kicked <laughs> Thank off the so podcast much. before it's even started. <laughs> Brilliantly this week, we've had dinosaur poems or suggestions. So I would think the past three weeks all set off by Alicia Stallings saying she wasn't convinced that there was a great dinosaur poem. And now one of our brilliant listeners has written one, which is above and beyond, but totally brilliant. Um, it's um, Paul Slade, who tweets as Planet Slade. He's written a set of limericks, and I think they're quite short. So um, since you're a captive audience, I think perhaps we might just read it out to you, shall we? A musical young stegosaurus, whose songs he felt sure would restore us, set off on a quest to give of his best by forming a dinosaur chorus. Young steggy sang bass in this choir. The others, thank goodness, sang higher. Their six-ton soprano lent on the piano and smashed it to shrapnel of wire. Though scared they would be megaflops, they finally pulled out the stops and stuck out their necks with songs by T-Rex on Triceratop of the Pops. Up front they had two brontosaurs who snapped out a beat with their claws. The songs that they sung provoked in the young Vesselarapturus applause. He's a genius. Yes, isn't he? Yes, I think there's a lot of vesselo rapture. I can't. I really can't say that vesselo no. rapturous applause going. No, on well, we here. we won't reveal to, to our listeners how many goes I had at say. <laughs> we definitely, <laughs> we definitely won't. So thank you very much for that. And if anybody else feels like writing or contributing anything else along that line, please. Well, I'm wondering if somebody might set it to music. Good idea. Let's keep them busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, coming up on this week's show. Hunters, naturalists and romantics. Time to allow other people into the world of writing about our environment. And is artificial intelligence taking the humanity and the fun out of games? 
We'll investigate and tell you a surefire way to win at the poker table. No, we won't do that, but it did catch your attention. But first, if you've ever read Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows, The Adventures of Mole, Ratty, Toad et al., then you'll remember a chapter that feels less jolly and more mysterious than the rest of the book, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's a richly descriptive, mystical and high-toned evocation of the wonders of sunrise on a riverbank, with a guest appearance by the god Pan, whose domain this is. This unusual chapter has been extremely influential in all sorts of ways, as Sarah Hudson explains to us in her brilliant piece on four books of what is usually called nature writing. She says, In their different ways, all four anthologies give a strong sense of a genre in metamorphosis. We're delighted that Sarah can join us today to talk us through questing voles and other more serious approaches. Sarah, many thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me on. Oh, yes, the questing vole. Yes, we'll get to the questing (laughs) vole. I'd quite like to just leave him there, but we probably will have to talk about him, won't we? Um, But first of all, I'm going to plunge right in, if you don't mind, and talk about definitions. There is a problem, um, you and some of the editors of these books seem to agree, with the term nature writing. What, What is the problem? Well, the trouble with the term really is it's actually such a useful term. When you say you're a nature writer and you write about nature, people tend to immediately know what you mean. So writers like me always have this struggle because on the one hand, it's a very quick way if somebody says to you, you know, in the facile environment of a party, say, what do you do? And you just want to be quick. You say, you're a nature writer. But in actual fact, it's a phrase that I really try not to use because nature and nature writing is so loaded with this historic concept of nature being something separate from humans. Nature is something, you know, part of the great chain of being. If we go back to, you know, Renaissance ideas with men at the top of it, particularly men, Mm. I'm gendering that quite deliberately, and then God above that and man made in God's image and nature being something separate from us. And one of the most exciting things about writing about the living world at the moment uh, is people trying to find ways not to write from that viewpoint and to take apart and reconfigure our place in this universe of living beings yeah so it's not it's not us watching them what whatever they are it's it's we're, we're, we're all a part of it. Absolutely. Well, I will try not to say it, or if I say it during the course of our talk, rest assured I'm saying it in quote marks. <laughs> let's, let's, get that, let's get that clear. Um, and so now let's reel back a bit. And can you give us a, a little uh, potted history of what that nature writing has been like over the past couple of hundred years? A really good place to sort of start with it is the birth of nature writing is Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne. Um, Several things come together in this book. You've got um, a gentleman scientist and parson living in the country, writing his observations, direct observations of what's going on in the living world around him. And of course, that is rightly an enormous book and still read today and written very well and there are all sorts of things that Gilbert White observed for the first time and noted for the first time and speculated on. So if you like that's where the genre begins. It begins with um, chaps and they pretty much were chaps who came from a fairly leisured class for the most part 
and they had a scientific interest in what was going on around them and they were curious and all those things are good places to start but it is even as I've briefly described it you can see all the things about I might have been left out of that other perspectives of other people and other times um, so if we start there with that and then it develops through the 19th century and into the early 20th century and then you get the rise of <laughs> what Kathleen Jamie of course referred to as the lone enraptured male um, I'm whizzing forward slightly mm. here but I think that phrase that she applied to Robert McFarlane in a review in the London Review of Books of one of his works uh, about I think it's about 15 years ago now um, but that phrase can be read quite well back into time as well because you have around about sort of Edwardian times um, into the 20s and into the 30s, you have a group of men, largely again in the canon, there were women writing, but it's men who made the canon, and they're, they're still chaps, and, they, and some of them are sporting chaps, some of them at this point, because there is rather a strange twist that have gone on, are, shall we say, fascist chaps as well, I'm thinking here of Henry Williamson, mm. of course who wrote the Tark of the Otter books, and some really quite strange things. And T.H. White, um, who wrote, he, he was you know, an extraordinary writer, but was a very, very um, difficult and, and troubled person in lots of ways. And he wrote about birds, didn't he? And there was some very, uh, all about those relationships. And a lot of that was about kind of cruelty. Yes, and... yes. Well, he famously, he wrote The Goshawk, which was about him knowing nothing mm. about birds of prey, trying to tame and train a wild goshawk based on his reading of a medieval manual for training goshawks or hawks in general so you know there's a lot of cruelty in that book that's in that, that in that book which is intended and unintended i wonder if it's um if it's also to do with the idea of a, the, the man sort of in retreat from the world the kind of reclusive loner who's carving his own path in the world and has retreated from science um, has retreated from society and politics and everything like that yeah I think that's a good point there's a lot of that sort of toughness and um, proving how strong you are by pitting yourself against the elements and pitting yourself against nature mm-hmm. um, that's a very strong theme that runs through quite a lot of that um, Gavin Maxwell uh, again, famous for Ring of Bright Water, of course. He, his first book that he wrote was actually about um, a shark um, fishing school that he ran um, and about killing lots of sharks. So you, this, is, this, is not, this is not cuddly stuff. There's a, there's a long history of this not being, not being sort of... It's not the questing vole. Really, it's not. No. Is there also a, a class aspect to it? too as well as the the gendered aspect yes very much so because of course you you need money and you need leisure to be able to retreat off into the wilderness in in this sort of way um these are not by i mean john clare the poet was absolutely anomaly in not coming from that sort of background if all these other people we've been talking about these later writers had had money they had leisure they had education uh, they didn't like people very much. Some of them didn't get on with people so well. They wanted to prove themselves in some way. It's very masculinist because we, we've been talking about this idea of um, being tough and winning at something, some undefined context. There's an undefined context going on in, in a lot of, of those books. 
I'm just going to briefly stick up for Robert McFarlane because because those things, I mean, she was kind of talking about the tradition, wasn't she? Uh, and Robert McFarlane's not, his work's not concerned about being tough and beating nature and all of that sort of thing. He's he's about trying to conserve it and, and, and wonder at it and things like that. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you've made that clarification because I would not put him in the bracket of these um, earlier 20th century writers at all. I'm just reflecting on the tradition, yeah, which yeah. All, all of us who write about the living world have on our shoulders mm. so these books um that you reviewed they are aiming to do something different aren't they so the first women on nature edited by Catherine norbury that's doing something different by constant by the act of concentrating on women's voices is that right yes it is and it's really refreshing to see this and um I've, I was very keen on this book. I'd heard about it, um, obviously, before it came out and had signed up for my co copy because I think that as a part of this expansion and looking around at these other voices and what other people were writing, <laughs> and, you know, if we just even start women, that's the other half of the human race. And, there's, and it's mm. such a good book. There's so, many, so much stuff in there and it's so varied. Um, as I've said, you know, we've, we've got um, Isabella Beaton writing re recipes about mushrooms. We've got Dorothy Pilly climbing mountains in Snowdonia and Nan Shepherd, of course, in the Cairngorms. So there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. So the second one, we have to whip through them quite quickly because there are four of them. The second one is Wild Isles, mm -hmm. edited by Patrick Barkham. And that seems more traditional um, in its approach you do pick out a couple of highlights i'm going to ask you to talk us through the tadpole um incident oh yes that's like the title for a wonderful crime novel it is isn't it tadpole incident <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's chris packham's um fingers in the sparkle jar this little extract where he describes as a very young child i really don't think he would do this now um deciding to try what tadpoles taste of and they taste of muddy water slightly gritty strange when one wiggled beneath the tongue and quite tricky to bite or chew <laughs> don't try this at home kids <laughs> no don't try that <laughs> really, really quite gruesome um yeah but yeah there's the barkham the patrick barkham selection it's just a really good reader you know it's a good solid canter through all this stuff from the beginnings right up to where we are now and different you know and a good introduction as well if you wanted a good overview as a whole of um what i'm going to inverted commas call nature writing patrick does it for you it's a good book in that respect and you say that when he's talking about it he identifies these three schools or strains of writing that, that which you mentioned the scientific naturalists the sportsman authors who were sort of also hunters weren't they and romantics but you um you claim another major source has been overlooked uh, slightly taking us back to my introduction don't you yeah well, very much taking it back to your introduction because there is this whole genre of children's writing writing for children and writing for what we would now call teenagers as well um about nature and about the countryside and and i'm particularly interested within that of this whole genre of what might be called pony books um, and people always assume that pony books are um sort of pony club little trite little tales about people winning kids winning rosettes and wanting a pony and all the rest of it. and of course that's part of it but there's a there's a strand of these books where they're written largely by female authors 
and they're really about the landscape and, and they're really about the places and the living the other living beings the living landscape that they're set and the horses and the ponies the equines in them are another aspect of that they're the point of contact between the heroine because it nearly always is a heroine a young girl generally a sort of early teenage girl and her contact with the rest of the universe and that's a sort of fascinating moment and the nature writing if you like as a genre within those books at times is exquisite um i'm thinking of Kay and Payton's book fly by night which is set in essex marshes and it really is the story about a girl who buys a really unsuitable pony and trains it but it's all interwoven with descriptions of her riding along the seawall and the creeks and the landscape during winter and the woodlands and the partnership with another another being, which is her pony, in experiencing all this. I mean, I remember um, reading some of them and yes, they, they're very easily dismissed, aren't they, as a, a sort of the equivalent of jolly hockey sticks. Um, but they are, they're often they're, they're very intense. It's the relationships that I remember about the horses. They cared deeply about them. Did Kay and Peyton write flambards? Because the horses figure in that as well, and there's a brilliant thing about that the the girl who goes to live there learns to ride and learns to hunt, and she loves hunting, though she can she she doesn't really you know she can see that there's stuff wrong with it, but but the the kind of evocation of it is wonderful. Lambards is, is is sort of just just treasured in memory among a certain age group, by which I mean mine, I suppose. But also, I mean, would you count something like National Velvet? I was wondering about National Velvet. Because that seems so, you know, it's not, it's, it's horse racing. Uh, and it's, it's obviously not nature in that sense. But that relationship between her and the pie uh, it was just, I mean, just stuck in my memory since I read it when I, I, don't know, I was about 10 or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I, I would definitely include National Velvet in it because, it's, again, it's a place-based book. All these books, they're so, so place-based. We talk about place writing now, um, and that's at the heart of all these pony books that work, that are the good ones. Um, there's lots of descriptive passages in um, National Velvet about the place that Velvet and her family live and what it's like and just, just descriptive pieces. I remember it as sort of, I mean, it was obviously a kind of, girls can do anything and she's competing you know sort of disguised but the thing I really remember about that book it was also about her tracing a line between her and her mother and her mother was a champion swimmer but had sort of subsumed her life to looking after the family and and put that all to one side and there does seem to be this sort of almost submerged kind of feminism in a lot of these books yeah, I think that's very strong. I mean, the thing and the physicality is part of that feminism as well. Um, mm. Velvet's mother was a champion swimmer, and by the time in the in the timing that the book is set, she has got all these kids, and she's grown corpulent, and she has to wear stays. There are scenes where she's having a course taken on and off at night that velvet witnesses oh yes i remember that yeah and we added we have these scenes you have these scenes of this adolescent girl witnessing this very mature female body being uncovered in her presence um and i think i think there's something really quite intriguing going on there that's about um liminality and thresholds and changing from one um, existence to another they're all threshold books but it's so interesting that we're here we are three women talking about it we've all completely fixated on the, the horse and, and girls and women books, 
but they 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 did really make an impression and 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 like black beauty as well made an incredible impression but because of the way they are slightly dismissed they're not the sort of books that you're encouraged to talk about are they really no and i and i think i think that's a great shame and of course if you go on if you go on the internet there's a very strong sort of set of people who are genuinely really interested in these books and for whom you know it had a it had a quite an impact on a whole generation's adolescence, I think, reading some of these books. And one of the things particularly, I think, that girls got from it is that books allow a certain amount of bravery and, again, physicality into a girl's world, which is not depicted anywhere else. I mean, it's riding the horse thing is scary. It's challenging. That's one of the themes in all these books. The girl in the book classically can't do it. She can't ride very well. Physically, she hasn't got the skills. She's not very strong. And then she's challenged and she gets cold. She probably gets injured. Um, She gets scared. And she and the narrative, you know, the narrative arc is obviously that she overcomes all these things in various ways. But it's the overcoming. I said that that's part of the threshold theme. It's part of the it allows girls to be um, within fiction, to be active heroines in a way that you just don't see in um, other genres. Mm. There must be an element of sexuality in that, too, in the sense that, you know, horse riding not seen as feminine to the point where women aren't allowed to ride unless riding side saddle up to a sort of point in history because they can't actually have this animal as it were you know between their legs yeah I mean this the sexuality thing is is interesting and I would I would always say the relationship is a sensual one rather than a sexual one Hmm. and it's it's about a certain sort of somatic knowledge rather than a sexual knowledge um, I mean, if you ride as a rider, and I do ride, you you can achieve a sort of mind meld with the horse that you're riding. And um, there's been some quite interesting neuroscience into this more recently about body language between rider and between horse um, cohering. And it's it's that actually which the girls in the books are gaining. It's that sort of knowledge which which they're after um just coming back to the side title thing that that's quite funny in a sense as well because we were talking about flambards earlier and the heroine in that who goes off hunting and of course she's riding side saddle because ladies did in the 19th century and the great thing about riding side saddle which i did learn to do at one point actually is you can get on a horse having never ridden before have one hour's lesson and if if this is your bag go out hunting and jump these massive fences and go galloping off the next day because it's practically impossible to fall off you're held in place on the saddle it's much easier yes. than rocking a stride <laughs> are you put it like that that sounds like more like my cup of tea not because I'd be wearing a long skirt but because it would be a lot easier it sounds more like having a nice sit down doesn't it you're just sort of you're just sort of wedged (laughs) into place I mean women were told that they had to wear a really good corset when they rode side saddle and yeah that's less appealing yeah but you see it holds your back straight because you're again held oh I see because you have to have your back straight otherwise you flop from side to side and you can lose your balance and also what I was told when I was taught um, side saddle, it didn't, this isn't really applied to me because I'm quite a slim bill, but I was told you really should still wear a corset if you ride side saddle today because it stops what she called the udder judder on the rider. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. 
and places right. we didn't expect to be going in this item, <laughs> I must say. Fascinating. So, <laughs> I was wondering how we would we get away from the horses because it's so fascinating, <laughs> but I think that's our cue. <laughs> Just to to go back to the books that that uh, that were under review, the third one, "Gifts of Gravity and Light," edited by yeah. Anita Roy and Pippa Marland, that does aim to break away from the traditional approach of so-called nature writing, doesn't it? Does it does it succeed? Do you think? Well, it's it's a good selection and it's a really really laudable attempt, and it is difficult to do these things. It's difficult to. Um, not only try to decide where you want to push a genre, but then to go out and find pieces of writing that exemplify what it is you're looking for. I mean, I really like the Alice Fowler piece in this about mud. I often think actually about her piece about mud and how mud forms again and again on pathways in the same places because the, um, the molecules in the soil have a sort of memory that remember that they go muddy every year and... and um, and how Alice herself has to work and work and work on her allotment to add organic matter and leaf mould and so forth into the mud to try to try and sort of rebuild the actual structure of the soil and stop it doing that. So I think of that every time I walk along a particularly muddy path in winter with my dog. Um, and I thank her for bringing that sort of um, different perspective onto this sort of material. Um, and I think that the challenge that's that's outlined in there about women going out into the countryside on their own is faced very squarely by Jay Griffiths. And I think that's really important. Um, I have to say that I have felt often that I, there have been times when I've thought I might like to go camping on my own and do that sort of thing just in the middle of nowhere and I haven't done it because I haven't wanted to go somewhere on my own that I'm just not sure about and I think that's a common experience for women Mm. um so I think that's a really important piece in the book as well by by Jay Griffiths where she sort of skewers some of this Mm -hmm. and then some of the other pieces in there again are looking at looking at landscapes that might be familiar from other pieces of writing by other people but because they're coming from a different perspective because they're coming from a more diverse viewpoint you're seeing them from from a from that altered perspective, and that and that's really good as well. But you know, it's a big big um, aim for one volume to be carrying about remaking the whole of this nature writing stuff, you know, in one go in one volume. Yeah. So I'm I'm sort of hesitant to be, and I wouldn't be critical of them for not succeeding 100% in in doing that. I think that is an inevitable result. No, but it's it's a it's a it's a it's a valiant attempt, as it were. Absolutely. And the last book, Out of Time: Poetry from the Climate Emergency, edited by Kate Simpson. That I get the sense from your piece that that does manage something different. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is a really important book. I mean, I would think that, and I have to say, you know, I do have an activist background, and although I haven't done anything with Extinction Rebellion recently, um, before the COVID restrictions came into place, I was a speaker. I used to give the heading for Extinction talk, um, which is like the introductory talk. And um, I think that not only is this a really important collection for people to 
come into contact with and to think about and to perhaps respond to. But I also think that Kate makes some very interesting points about language itself and the, perhaps the capacity of poetry uh, as opposed to other uh, literary forms to do what she calls rewilding or remaking language and metaphor and helping us to try to adjust our position in the situation that we're in at the moment. Is that partly the to, to make that change that we were talking about right at the beginning so that to make the change from us and them to okay this 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 is all of us this is everything how do we how do we work to to change yeah. all of it together? Yes, I mean, she, Simpson's got a class, a really cracking introduction to this book, um, which sort of lays out her main lines of thought on this, and I, it's a model of its kind. I think it's very, very, very inspiring. And she talks about um, some of the more philosophical point of view, um, Timothy Morton, the philosopher's idea, for example, the challenge set by hyper objects, which is his concept of threatening realities like climate breakdown that are just so vast and so awful that we can't fully comprehend them as individuals and we're struggling with that and how can we um, make any meaningful response to that situation that we're in I mean that's that's one of the problems one of the things that I find more and more is that um, it's not a question now the whole narrative on on the on the climate breakdown is not that people deny in most cases deny climate science it's just that it's it's not possible to completely take on board what this is about and of course even if you try to how can you as an individual do anything meaningful about it because we're all we're all interwrapped into this same um you know system of existence particularly in the west is that people feel sort of helpless and it's too unmanageable is the is, is the argument that poetry is short enough and sort of lucid enough and distilled enough that we can pay attention for that amount of time yes I think I think that's the argument that um Kate Simpson is making uh she says you know her idea is that poetry in particular is a tool for survival um and so she's then quite explicit about what writer the responsibility that writers have that poets have to use it um she talks about the restorative power of linguistics as a form of rewilding um, with the aim of regenerating depleted areas of thought and as she puts it, flooding them with compassion for the li- living world. I would say not only uh, regenerating depleted areas of thought, but allowing us to um, open ourselves to areas of thought, which, you know, we may not have held in our, in our mind before. Mm-hmm. These last two books that you, you mentioned in particular, I suppose, this idea of sort of, you know, updating a tradition, allowing it to speak to different groups of people who perhaps felt that, you know, so-called nature writing wasn't for them. I wonder to what extent that's also about confronting the idea of nature and the countryside as almost sort of being synonymous. And the fact that the living world exists in cities, in suburbs, in different places all over the world, in different societies, and, and do you think that's the change that you're seeing sort of coming on stream in contemporary nature writing? I'm using that too in air quotes. Yeah, very much so. And I think it's really good and really important that we're seeing that and necessary. Um, you know, it's just about being the outdoors, wherever the outdoors might be. I am a bit worried about it not being the outdoors and perhaps the consequences of it being indoors because... Um, 
um, let's not go down that rabbit hole in this conversation. But if, but if, if as you say, we're looking at, we're just looking at it as um, other life forms that share this universe with us and where they occur, um, that just seems to be such an exciting starting place, but not just exciting in an entertainment kind of way, but a necessary, you know, philosophical way in, in, in recalibrating our view of the world and our place in it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I think we could probably talk about this for another two and a half hours, especially the horses. But this is really horrible. It's just occurred to me. And I'm sorry. I'm going to rein us in there. (laughs) Oh, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. It's unforgivable. (laughs) Thank you very much, Sarah Hudson, for talking to us today. to come on the show are the lone geniuses of games the grandmasters and champions a thing of the past beaten back by algorithms and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. TLS podcast with me, Alex Clark, and the TLS arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Now, if you believe in movies, winning at games like poker and chess seems to be a matter of attitude and genius. Think of Paul Newman bluffing his way to a prison poker victory in Cool Hand Luke, or the combination of dysfunction and determination that made the recent drama The Queen's Gambit so compelling. 
But what if the human element was surplus to requirements? What if a series of carefully constructed algorithms could put a whole array of games into checkmate? To discuss that, we are delighted to be joined by James McConaughey, who's reviewed Oliver Roder's Seven Games, A Human History, in this week's issue. Welcome, James. Hello, lovely to be here. I should ask you, just before we get going, and Lucy, you too, are you games players yourselves? Oh, enormously, yes. I grew up without a television and we played cards as a family. I was crushed routinely playing chess with my brother, who was much better at it. There was all kinds of family inquisitions <laughs> playing bridge. Why did you lead the, 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 you know, the nine, James? And I had no idea why I'd led the nines. I was the youngest in the family. So, yeah, I, I grew up losing at games. Okay, so you come to this with a particular sort of baggage, we might say. And I, I know, I know whereof you speak. I have joined a family that is games obsessive, particularly cards. Uh, and not only do they play a version of Rummy that has its own special family name, but it has sort of distinctive penalties for if you play it wrongly. So if you throw a joker away, or if you take too long. Or even if you ask what jokers are that round, then you get fined extra points. And I have only, I think, one. <laughs> I think once, and I've still got the score sheet. So that's how scarred I am. Well, I'm I'm worried to hear this because <laughs> you know if they're playing with their own family rules, can you be sure the rules aren't changing without you knowing? You know, how can you just suddenly they pull a rule out of the back pocket? I'm suspicious at your record there. I think you're being cheated. Thank you very, very much. I, I fear you're not correct, but it was very, very kind of you. Lucy, what about you? Quite similar, actually. Um, card games. Uh, I was the youngest, now now very much not. Still being beaten. Very bad at the strategy games that, that we're going to talk about. And I have a kind of fond dream that one day I will win Racing Demon. It doesn't happen. I find it so stressful and so addictive, and I, I just don't win it, but I keep playing. The best of all card games, I'm 100% with you. The, the mania, yeah. the, the series of rising panic. It's, it's <laughs> awful. <laughs> it just sort of says Agatha Christie to me, Racing Demon. It's, that, it's got that kind of feel. I, that sounds a lot more decorous than our, our, our version of Racing <laughs> Demon. But they do have a period connotations games. And, and it's very interesting that, you know, they, they rise and fall in popularity. They have these these cycles, um, which actually the book talks about really interestingly. Yes, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it it's, has that kind of, I think we called it, and you, you say in the review, it's a kind of boom and bust in the sort of games ecology. I mean, this is, we should start by saying, it's a very particular, seven games is, is, is the title of the book. It's very particular kinds of game and very particularly ordered the way that he works through them. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, it's one of the things I, I really admired about the book, actually, was the the precision and the strategic nature of its structure um you know you take seven games everybody's immediately going to be saying why haven't you got mahjong or, or whatever it is their game that they think is really interesting that's not in the book um but the the ordering has a point um e each game adds a particular strategic feature according to ollie Roder, the author um which makes it closer to the real world in a particular way that makes it a bit harder for artificial intelligence to do. So although then the games aren't necessarily more complex from our point of view, as you progress through them, through the book, 
um, each one is, is, is an additional challenge for an artificial intelligence to, to, to deal with. So, uh, for instance, the, the last one is bridge. Um, and, and it's partly because of the, the complexity, including the signaling complexity of the bidding system, which, which kind of puts it at the moment outside the, 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 the reach of, of AI. But the thing that he starts with, you know, drafts or checkers, it's called, obviously, yes. that's a game that we think of as very simple because it's a game you play as a kid. Um, and that's where he starts with. But in fact, you have these genius kind of drafts, checkers players who actually have taken it to a whole different level. And yet still AI has managed to defeat them, hasn't it? That's it. I mean... Draft is, is, is a particularly interesting one um, because the, the, the number of possibilities of a game, it doesn't branch in, in quite the, the level of, of chess. So you can kind of, you can crunch the numbers and you can kind of predict the outcomes of games with relatively small amount of computing processing power. Um, and, and for that reason, it's, it's within the range of the human brain to be able to do it. I mean, the, the, the legend of Marion Tinsley, who we're introduced to in the book, this extraordinary charismatic preacher, um, he, he lost three games out of a thousand, we're told, and uh, an analysis of his games didn't find a single mistake, which is remarkable. Um, but it's 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 remarkable. It's also an indication of the limitations of drafts. You know, at that, if that's possible, it gives you an, a sense that drafts is not um, sort of an infinite series of possibilities. I mean, obviously, the pleasure of books like this is you do meet the characters so we meet the poker player Chris Moneymaker we meet this this guy Lee Seddall who is the champion of Go but is then defeated by the machine AlphaGo. Yes it's human stories at the heart of the book it's the sort of thing that can get a bit irritating in non-fiction where you know every theoretical point is illustrated by uh, the author sort of randomly having coffee with somebody but but this book really doesn't do that it has much more integrity um, because the book, although it's about games and although it's about the encounter between artificial intelligence and games, it's entirely built around human stories about the people who have become passionately obsessive about the game or about creating an artificial intelligence to win the game. And so every chapter is built not just around the game, but around these individual people who, of course, being people who are obsessed with games are madly eccentric. Um, and the stories are tragic as well. I mean, is there any hubris um, sort of greater than trying to um, take on a, a machine which has sort of vast, seemingly apparently um, beyond human powers and then taking it on and trying to beat it? Is there something in that story that's uh, much bigger than, than just a story about games? It's a story about the, the extent of human aspiration and, and the p possibility of failure. I mean, it's tragedy. Well, I wondered, you know, if, if it gave you any insight into why we play these games at all. I mean, you know, obviously they originated, many of them, you know, centuries and centuries ago. They have been replicated across societies in variations. Why do we do it? Well, the obvious answer is to win. Um, and that is there in the book. I mean, the people who are building the AIs to crush human players are indulging in that same, you know, impetus, that same competitive spirit. You know, they want to be beyond the best. Um, that's what drives Rhoda himself when he enters a poker tournament and he enters a Scrabble tournament. I and mean, he, he really wants to do this. 
Um, but obviously there's much more than that. I mean, he talks about agency. I mean, the, the interesting thing for me about games is that they are, of course, models and metaphors. Um, they are versions of reality reduced to a manageable size where we can see and pick apart the workings. Um, and so part of it is that, how can I describe it? Um, like a cartographical spirit, you know, being able to see something laid out more clearly in miniature. And games do that. I mean, you know, chessboard is a battlefield um, at, at some level. So a part of it is, is, is that spirit. And of course, there's just the, the delight in, in play. But then you say, why do we play games? We, we play them to play. Well, why do we play? And sort of an infinite series of regression there. Um, he talks about agency. He talks about the, the, the sense that in playing a game, you're engaging in, in a sort of complete activity that is sufficient in itself. Um, it doesn't require um, explanation beyond the game. And in that enclosed universe, there is a kind of satisfaction, I think. The people that you talk about when you say all the the human stories that it's revolving around and these all these grandmasters and things, they do all seem to be men. Oh, totally. Am I am I wrong? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're a hundred percent, possibly more, right. <laughs> there is a very male um flavour to a lot of this. I mean, even the choice of games, I mean, these universes, I mean, of course there are, there are female players of chess, you know, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, we all recognise that some of this activity is, you might call it male, you might call it spectrum activity, um, you know, the, the desire to kind of crunch at an extremely granular level. Um, you know, who, who wants to learn 35,000 words that you wouldn't ordinarily come across in life in order to win a competition. Who doesn't? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but I'm talking about Scrabble. But the interesting thing is, I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. I, you know, obviously I'm a writer, I adore words, but I, I've always struggled with Scrabble because this is not about the meanings of words. This is not about the uses of words. They're kind of social or intellectual hinterland. This is just about the knowledge of the thing in order that it can be deployed. Its meaning is irrelevant. I mean, he tells the extraordinary story of the great Scrabble champion who wins uh, the international competition in French, despite not speaking French. French must have been so annoyed. Yeah, can you imagine? You <laughs> the French champion must have been like, well, thanks very much. <laughs> I was surprised to see Scrabble here because you think of it as a word game, because you think of it as a game that's much more to do with imagination the imagination to kind of see how words and letters can fit on a board but of course it's as much about numbers isn't it it's knowing how many letters there are. it's about scarcity and the value that you assign to letters so I suppose it is an arithmetic game really yes it, it absolutely is and and the people who win Scrabble increasingly are people who s subject it to kind of mathematical analysis and to mathematical approaches and and systems of learning how to win Scrabble that themselves are derived from artificial intelligence. So, um, yeah, it, and it, even, even the, the, the placement of letters, you know, it's not about having a wide working vocabulary or a broad cultural hinterland. That will get you so far. But what, what will get you to win Scrabble is knowing, you know, the, the X thousand word, two letter words that can be deployed in particular situations. You know, this is a, uh, an algorithm that will get you through. You know, you have problem X, you have solution Y, and, and you know those instinctively. Uh, and just the um, like the practice in in um, in dealing with anagrams. I mean, the top Scrabble players run anagram programs 
where they just have a timer and they do anagram after anagram after anagram after anagram and try and solve them as a way of kind of brain training. Uh, it's not the same kind of ability as linguistic ability that we would ordinarily understand. That anagrams, of course, makes me think of crosswords. And um, Oliver Roder is a crossword compiler too, isn't he? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you get to a sense of, of who he is. He's a crossword compiler. He's, uh, he's interested in economics. He's interested in artificial intelligence. Again, we're in a particularly and peculiarly male world, if I can say that. Um, these are preoccupations that stereotypically attract particular kinds of men. Uh, we, we all know those men. I'm slightly one of those men myself. Do you think it is also partly a self-fulfilling prophecy? Do you know what I mean? That 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 um, because of course there's lots of. I mean, as you said, I'm thinking of the Victoria Corin Mitchell winning that. Didn't she win the Poker World Championships almost out of nowhere? And a lot of poker is, hmm. you know, it's about all sorts of things. Yes. and also there's lots of women very good at math. Absolutely, totally. One of the best poker players I know is a woman, um, and has won many things. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Well, I'm talking about a stereotype and a culture. Um, no more than you know we will see change in this it will undoubtedly as all kinds of stereotypes break down um but nevertheless there does seem to be something irreducibly attractive to particular kinds of male brain in, in this world and, and when you say cultural as well i would say also anglophone as well i mean the, the, these are these are habits of of um of culture i mean the, you know playing these these sorts of games i mean even the choice of go um okay it's a chinese game but it's a particular kind of Chinese game played in American, um, you know, computer basements in Harvard mm. master's programs. Yes. You know, uh, you know, there are many other, I mean, Mahjong, I mentioned, um, is a game I love playing, just wouldn't feature here. It's, it's not in that world. It's not coming from that kind of techie um, Anglophone yeah. universe. I do actually remember, I think, I, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I, I was, uh, a long story, but I was on a cruise once, and one of the things I liked to do was sit in a very deserted corridor overlooking the sea and have a cup of tea and read a book. And every afternoon, a group of women would descend on it and play mahjong very, very vociferously and loudly. And it was almost like the best <laughs> cruise street theatre, as it were, ever. It was so <laughs> fascinating, but it did totally seem to be social I mean cutthroat I think but social and interactive and it as far from the kind of Harvard basement as you could imagine and, and that's not really so true of chess you wouldn't describe and of course I've been to chess tournaments myself and there is a kind of society going on there but no it's very focused on the board and the silence um, and, and and these games are are about that sort of irreducible um, mental contest um, almost the more hived off from the real world it is, um, the more it kind of applies to the game. Bridge, bridge is the interesting one. He, he does go there with bridge at the end um, because, of course, it's it's sort of deeply social game. Um, bridge clubs, you know, supper, you know, the, the, the whole the whole. But at the upper echelons of bridge, it becomes more and more and more mathematical. Um, and I suppose that's really his point. He's interested in that side of it, in in the top players, always not in the kind of social. Um, cultural aspect of play that, that that gets much less in the book presumably even in bridge at that highest level there is an element of the relationship between the two partners is there or is that a sort of romantic myth that I'm holding on to I, I fear that it's a romantic myth you're being <laughs> um, you know Rhoda says that it's one of the great 
shames really of getting good at something is that you lose that side of it. He says, you know, the tragedy of getting really good at Scrabble is he can't play with ordinary people anymore. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, a bridge, yes, there are, there, there are codes and all kinds of things, but there are actually rules in bridge which prevent, which officially you, you're not supposed to have a code that, isn't, that couldn't be subject to outside scrutiny. So private signaling is not allowed. Coded mm. signaling that is explicit is allowed. So um, it's a very odd thing about bridge. And, and the same with poker bluffing. He says, you know, bluffing is gone. Um, it doesn't, it, it's head down, headphones on, hoodie up, play the algorithm. That, that's what the top players are doing. So there's a sense of loss here. That does feel like a loss, doesn't it? Like a real, because we, we must have a very, we must have quite a romantic picture of, of poker, I guess. There, I feel with Rhoda, the, the two in contest, the romantic in him that loves games and loves play and loves the whole world that they create and the sort of passion for perfection. Uh, and that's, the, that's what the, the book plays with. It's that aspiration for the perfect game played by the perfect artificial intelligence. And yet with that comes the tragedy that all this is lost. Um, with that, you know, why play? The, the, yeah, ultimately, if, if a machine will always beat you, why do you still want to play is the question that he raises that I, I'm not sure he fully answers. I was thinking about this when you know, something that, that he mentions and you mentioned in the review. I mean, this idea that machines could just sort of, you know, spell an end to all of this. It's not totally new, is it? I mean, it's 25 years since Gary Kasparov was beaten by the IBM chess machine Deep Blue. And that didn't stop people trying to become grandmasters and have chess championships. So do you think humans will sort of just decide, no, we don't want this ruined? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's only been a problem, after all, for the top player in the world that there is still a machine that can beat him or her. Um, for the rest of us, we already know that there are lots of people that will always beat us. So we carry on regardless. I mean, isn't that a metaphor for the human condition in the, in the face of the implacable <laughs> destruction? We just carry on. Um, but yeah, uh, I think there is something lost, however, um, something about the status of the human. And this is where it gets really interesting. Um, how do we understand our new place in the world as a species when we're no longer top dog? So like all, all good books, it's kind of starting with this idea and this application to one particular thing, but actually it's clearly raising a lot more sort of a, a lot broader issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are issues that are being raised all over the artificial intelligence world. And what's clever about using games to open those questions is, it, again, it's doing what games themselves do. It's modelling reality within a smaller form. So I feel that this book is modelling the big questions about artificial intelligence within the smaller form of the game itself. So it, it's a clever way in to those really existential questions. Um, I don't know. I suppose one of the things that you, you know, you, you come to this idea, okay, here are these games, machines are developing algorithms or people are developing algorithms to put into machines to, to render them all, you know, theoretically obsolete. Is somebody not trying to invent a game that that can't be done to? What a beautiful idea. I, I love that. Yeah, the, the, the game that escaped. Yeah, I mean, if I could do it and monetize it, I, you know, we, I'd be a millionaire. 
there are there are lots of games that are irreducible. The, the question, you know, we're moving beyond the stage where is is does an AI win by just increasing its processing power? If it's just calculating moves ahead, like Deep Blue did when it beat Kasparov, that's not really artificial intelligence. That's just having a giant processor and, you know, throwing, throwing energy at a problem. I mean, the other thing is if you try to run any of these machines on the energy consumption of the human brain, you'd get absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I, I would beat uh, an artificial intelligence that had been trained on the energy of my own brain. So there is something humans have still, still got um, one up there. And of course, they're being trained. Actually, I don't think humans are, are, are losing in this context because all the learning done by AI is done on the, on the archive of our own gameplay. Although, and this is where it gets a little bit scary and, 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 and exciting, Mm. Now, machines are playing moves in games which we don't understand, which seem novel, um, which surprise the top masters. And, and because you can't look inside um, a machine learning system in the same way that you can kind of print out a, a, an ordinary program, you can't necessarily understand how it got to that move. And so, so here, here's something different. Here's something new. Here's a new form of intelligence that we can't even read that's wonderful is it and are they winning when they do that um yeah there, there are examples of both um there are moves which have changed the face of gameplay and people are still trying to understand what that move means and how else it could be applied so yes and there are others where the machine seems to kind of go it's described as sort of going mad and result in sort of catastrophic loss um and and again the problem is that we can't necessarily we can't easily work out what those moves mean because of course there is no intentionality there is no meaning in artificial intelligence not yet yeah. <laughs> not as far as we know well that that that's a good point um and, and one for the philosophers pr probably beyond um, beyond the scope <laughs> now i have to say lucy did did promise our listeners that you would tell us how to win at the poker table which Seems a bit of an arse. It was a fib, frankly, but... But, you know, if there, if there are things that you can share with us, but I would also like to know, I play computer chess many, many, many times every day. I'm terrible. I can't play. <laughs> but every single time, you know, the Queen sails out and, oh, God, suddenly I've lost again. I've never won a game. Uh, I am outraged anew <laughs> and shocked anew. Now there must be there must be something that I can learn from an algorithm that is going to at least stop me losing every single game. Well, I, I'm afraid you'll you'll have to train yourself to work like an artificial intelligence by by reviewing um, games. So I suppose not playing them, but um, going backwards through them. And um, I mean, what the masters do and what what the machines tend to do is that they play through branching possibilities and see where they go. So um, my, my, my advice for you, and I can't believe I'm giving chess learning advice. Here. You have no idea how bad I am at chess. Not as bad as me. I have that as an idea. <laughs> it would be to work backwards and forwards through all the possibilities um, of play and see where each leads. Um, I would find that mind-blowingly tedious. For me, chess, chess is about um, flair, um, improvisation, and um, gusto, which is why I lose all the time. So I'm totally with you. Yeah, you see, for me, it's about not wanting to lose the little horsey. And I think that might be where I'm going <laughs> wrong. But, 
But whenever I, I emerge really sort of glumly from my desk where I obviously should have been working, it's a fantastic procrastination device. And I say to my husband, I've lost again. And he's, well, why are you surprised? You don't know how to play chess. And I fear that might be a kind of life lesson that I'm still not ready to learn. I, just want, I want to say, keep, keep with the little horsey. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful advice. As for the poker winning advice, um, yeah, I'm afraid it's, it's you know, he- headphones on, hoodie down and uh, run the system. It's going to be absolutely no fun whatsoever is the, the only thing. If you, you can win, but, but you won't have any pleasure. Well, I think pleasure is sort of what we're at about, isn't it, at the, end, at the end of it all. But this does sound like a really pleasurable book to read. I mean, it sounds like you, you really kind of took a lot out of it. It's a delight. It's a delight. It has, it has everything, really. It has the, 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 the stories, the human touch, the characters. It has a sort of backbone of real intellectual curiosity. And it, and it says something really big about the human condition, both now and in, in the near future. Um, and that pretty much adds up to a, a thumpingly good book, in, in my view. Thank you ever so much, James. Well, we will be on to a winner if we read this book. That's what we'll say. Pleasure talking to you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to sarah hodston and james mcconaughey thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from alex clark and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.